You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Well, good morning. Morning, everyone. I am so excited, uh, grateful to be here and to be able to share with you, uh, share with family from God's Word this morning. This whole year, um, just starting last month, uh, we kicked off our new yearly theme of All In. All In. And it kind of, it has this tagline of, because God has gone all in for me, I can go all in for God. Uh, And then looking at that, Uh, there's kind of like two different responses that you can have to that. If you believe that that's true, there's two different responses you can have. One is to look at that and say, man, even me, like God has gone all in even for me. That's incredible. That's humbling. That's amazing. And that's the the theme for this month is that even me kind of response. And we looked at uh, different stories. We're looking at stories of people who have said even me. Um, and the first week, David preached on uh, the parable of the prodigal son who um, came back to the father, you know, and said, will you take back even me? And, uh, and then last week, Donnie preached on Zacchaeus, uh, who interacted with Jesus and said, Jesus, you're, you're interested in even me. You want to eat dinner with even me? And so this is the one kind of response, and that's, that's our theme. But there's a second response that you could have to that statement, which is like, yeah, of course me. You know, I, I'm kind of a likable person. Like, it makes sense that God would go all in for me. Like, I've got some good things going for me. God, in fact, God, I think, is just making a smart move here by going all in for me because he wants me on his side. Like, that's a good decision. I think God, God owes it to go all in for me, right? And there's two different responses. I, to be totally honest, like, this is embarrassing, but when I first saw the theme, even me, like, my instinctual subconscious thought wasn't, oh, yeah, God went all in for me, even me. My thought was, yeah, God went all in for those people who, like, really needed him, and, and they're terrible, and, oh, yeah, God loves, oh, what does that tell you about my, how I think of myself? That's, uh, you know, God forgive me. I, I, I don't want to have that kind of a mindset. Um, maybe I shouldn't have shared that with you this morning. Um, but honestly, that, we, there are two different responses that we can have to that. And, and you know as well as I do that two different people experiencing the same thing can have two totally different reactions to it. Case in point, little story. Um, a few years ago, I was 16 years old, just gotten my driver's license, uh, and I have a twin brother, so he was also 16 years old, just gotten his driver's license, surprisingly enough. And we were traveling across the country because we were going to drop off our older sister at college. And we were driving from Pittsburgh to Los Angeles. And we decided, let's do this in three days. So we did a 12-hour day, 12-hour day, 14-hour day to get there. And we're starting in the third day of this grueling car trip. And we were looking at the map, and I don't know, somebody came up with this idea. They said, hey, look, if we just take like an hour and a half detour, we'll be at the Grand Canyon. We can stop and see the Grand Canyon on our way through. So we thought, all right, you know, already been in the car for 30 hours. Like, what's one more? Let's go see the Grand Canyon. So we get to the Grand Canyon. Um, you know, you walk down the path, you you find the, the edge where the fence is, the, and you look over, and I was just blown away. Like, staring down, you're looking down like hundreds of feet. There's like an eagle majestically soaring, and then hundreds of feet below the eagle, there's then, you know, even further down, and it's like, wow, this is huge. It's beautiful. It's amazing. I'm just staring at it. And like five minutes in, Luke says, are you guys ready to go yet? 
It's like, I, I kind of, I'm ready to move on. I was like, Luke, what are you talking about? Like, we drove all this way. This is amazing. This is like beautiful. This is so impressive. And he's like, I, I don't know. I kind of thought it would be bigger. It's like, Luke, this is the best ditch on the face of the planet. Like, look at it. It's crazy. And he's like, I'm just not that impressed. Like, I, it's cool, but can we move on? Like, I, I, don't, I don't think it's that amazing. I was like, Luke, you're missing this. We're both looking at the exact same thing. I was blown away. Luke is having a whole different experience. He's like, what time is lunch? Let's get moving. Two totally different experiences. Uh, this happens to me all the time, like watching movies. You, I'm sure you've experienced this, where you sit through a movie, you're like, wow, that was moving. That was touching. I'm, I, I'm so uh, engaged with this. And you turn to the person next to you, what did you think of the movie? And they're like, uh, I, I don't know. I was kind of not really paying attention. Like, it wasn't, didn't get me, you know? And uh, actually, Stephen Truman, uh, I had this experience with him where I told him, like, this is my favorite movie. It moved me to tears. I literally cried watching this movie every time I've watched it. You need to see it. He watched it, came back to me. I hate this movie. It's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. Why would you recommend it to me? Like, two totally different experiences of the same thing. And you've experienced that before. And Jesus, man, he experienced that everywhere he went. People had two totally different reactions to him. Some people were like, yes, even me, like God loves even me. Jesus, I'm all in for you. This guy is incredible. He's changed my life. He's changed the direction of what I'm doing. He's given me meaning. This guy is amazing. And some people were like, this Jesus guy, he's, he's getting under my skin. He's annoying. Like, can somebody please, you know, lock him up? Or, or maybe we can have the Romans kill him or something. Two, two totally different reactions to Jesus. He polarized people wherever he went. And the people who were able to say, even me, to Jesus, like, even me, those are the people who were transformed. Those are the people who went from living uh, for themselves to living for something bigger. Those were the people who experienced true life change, and those are the people that God used to do incredible world-changing things, were the people who had the even me kind of reaction, not the, well, of course me, like, you know, big deal kind of reaction. So the question this morning that I want us to think about, that we're going to have on our brains as we uh, look through this scripture is, what does it take to say, even me? What does it take to say, even me? Let's, let's pray together, if you would. God, thank you for your word and for what it has to say to us. I pray that you would help us this morning uh, to be impacted by your word, to be moved, to be shaped by it, to be challenged by it, uh, and to learn what it means to say, even me, to you, and to respond appropriately to who you are, to what you've done. Would you speak to us through your word, through your spirit, and help us to hear what you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. So what's it take? What does it take to say even me? So we're in Luke chapter 7. Hopefully you've turned there by now if you've got a paper Bible or following in the notes. Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 36. And this is a story of a dinner party. This is a, a dinner party um, with two totally different kinds of reactions to Jesus. And uh, one of the guys, the guy who hosted this dinner party, he was a Pharisee. Uh, his name was Simon. And the Pharisees were, they were like these, these righteous dudes, these upright dudes. They always followed the law to the letter. They, you know, they were like the church people, the religious people. They always got everything right. And, uh, and sometimes it got to their heads a little bit. And he's the dude who's hosting this party, invites Jesus to the party and in verse 36, we're going to start this story. This, this is a tense story. This is a dramatic story. Luke, uh, the author of this gospel, he loves these kinds of stories. See, Luke was a guy 
um, who is a doctor, and he eventually heard of Jesus, and he, you know, started following uh, in the way he was a, a pal of Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament. Uh, between the two of them, Paul and Luke wrote most of the New Testament, um, and they, their lives were changed. And Paul, or Luke went around, and he interviewed people, and he said, tell me about Jesus when he was here, what, what, how he lived, what he said, what he did. And he compiled all these stories and, and kind of crafted this gospel, one of the four accounts in the Bible of Jesus's life. And they're full of these stories of life change. Luke loved to highlight this kind of thing. If you uh, actually, you might have noticed over the last few weeks, uh, the story of the prodigal son is in the book of Luke. The story of Zacchaeus is in the book of Luke. And now today we're in the book of Luke again. He, he loves highlighting these types of stories of humble people coming to Jesus. So here we are, verse 36, dramatic story. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Quick, quick note on this. Uh, don't, when you think of a dinner party, you probably think like sitting in the chairs at the table. Erase that out of your mind. Let's, let's set the image here. It says he reclined at the table. In that time, that culture, that place, no chairs at this table. They, it would have been lying down on the floor, kind of like this, maybe with a little pillow or something. Kind of imagine the way that you sit, uh, you lie on the ground around the Monopoly game, you know, with, as a family. That's the kind of feel. And uh, it might seem like a small point, but it's important as we're picturing this story. Uh, lying around the table, reclined at the table. And verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Read expensive. This was a very expensive jar of perfume, something important. And in that time, uh, anointing someone's head with oil or with perfume, uh, you know, a way of cleansing the odor, a way of showing a sign of respect. It's like a, uh, I'm honoring you by anointing you um, with this. And so that was not a terribly uncommon thing. Um, but what happens next is pretty terribly uncommon. Um, and so but this is what she probably had in mind as she came to this dinner party was, I'm going to anoint Jesus' head with oil. I've got to show how much he means to me. I've got to show how important he is. I've got to show this as a sign of respect. So imagine her state of mind coming to this party. She wasn't invited to this dinner party. She just heard Jesus was in town and said, I've got to go. I've got to go see him. I've got to go pour out this perfume to him. She's going in. She, it says she's a well-known as a sinner among the people of the town. And to go to a Pharisee's house, the righteous guys, the guys who had it all together, the church people's house, man, that, she must have felt so much shame of, of man, I, these people are judging me. They're looking down on me. And she's not wrong to think that because they were, as we'll read on in the story, Simon was, was judging her very hard. And uh, she tuned that all out and said, I'm focusing on Jesus um, and as she approaches, remember, he's, they're lying on the table, so she comes up behind his feet, and she's moved by being approaching Jesus. She's so moved, she starts crying. Verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. So she's crying. It's getting on his feet. What's she going to do? Then she, she wiped them with her hair. So she had to let down her hair, which was very unusual in that time, almost scandalous. She let down her hair uh, in the middle of this dinner party, wiped his feet with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. That probably sounds a little bit awkward to you, just even to read it. Like, imagine how awkward it was actually being there, witnessing it happen. You're at this dinner party. She walks in. She starts crying on his feet, anointing him with oil and wiping it with her hair. And Simon, 
he looks over at this, the Pharisee, and it says, verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And so he just has this image, and that's probably what all of them in that room were thinking. And this woman, she had to tune that out. She had to say, I've got tunnel vision. I'm seeing Jesus, and I just, no matter what anyone thinks, no matter what it looks like, no matter how improper it is, I am going to go to Jesus, and I'm going to honor him because he deserves it, because I have to. I'm going to make my way into this room and honor him in this way. She saw only Jesus and where she stood in relation to him. The thought here is that even me is intimate. It's intimate, it's personal. I mean, when you're kissing someone's feet, like, that's personal. <laughs> and it's moving. She was emotional. She had this connection. It was more than just this thing, you know, that she thought of. Or It was personal, it was intimate, it was a relationship that caused her to forget about, man, what does this look like to everyone else? How is everyone else seeing me right now? She didn't care about the appearances. She knew she had to make it to Jesus. And Simon, on the other hand, this Pharisee, he cared about appearances. He was looking on at this and saying to himself, man, you know, he said, it says if, if uh, this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him. Implication being, if he knew, he wouldn't let her do this because think of how it looks. This isn't proper. Like, think of what, kind, what it makes Jesus look like. And Jesus didn't care either. But Simon, he's always thinking about the image. He's thinking about how is this coming across? Man, this is happening in my house. Like, oh, this is, this is showing poorly on me as a host. And he was all concerned about this image. And in fact, um, Jesus had a lot of interactions with the Pharisees like that. And one time he even called them whitewashed tombs, which is pretty brutal. Think of it like you're, you're so polished on the outside. You're so clean on the outside. You care so much about how you look, how you come across to other people, what other people think of you. But on the inside where it counts decay and death and dead men's bones, that's harsh. That's harsh. So we forget about the mask. Forget about the appearance. Forget about the way that people are looking at you, whether they are judging you or whether they are thinking, wow, you're so awesome and righteous. Forget about that. It's you and Jesus. Even me is intimate. The story goes on in verse 40. Jesus answered him. So he's saying this, and Simon's saying this in his own mind. He's thinking it, but Jesus calls him out on it a little bit here. He answers him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And then Jesus, he goes into a classic Jesus answer. Like he doesn't, he doesn't just tell him. He, he starts a story. He starts telling a parable. He says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. And Simon's probably like, again, like Jesus, come on, just tell me. Don't quit with the stories already. He says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Um, a denarius was about a day's wages. So update this to modern money. Maybe think of like one person owed him $50,000. One person owed him $5,000. And at this point in the story, uh, you know, who would you rather be? The guy who owes $50,000 or the guy who owes $5,000? Math is not that difficult. It's pretty easy math here. You want to be the guy who owes $5,000. I think I'd take that position pretty clearly. And Jesus goes on, verse 42 Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And with that question, Jesus, he kind of like flips the story. And all of a sudden you're thinking, well, wait a second. 
do I, do I want to be the one who owes more money? Do I, do I actually, they seem to end up, end up better off. They have more love for this man because they owed him more. And Simon, his, his interest is piqued. He maybe sees the writing on the wall a little bit and hesitantly replies. He sees this isn't going to end well in his favor, but he replies to the question with the obvious answer. Well, okay, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven would love him more. Jesus answers, you know, you have judged correctly. Great job. Well done. You know, A plus, gold star. As long as we think we have things covered on our own, as long as we think that we don't owe that much, as long as we think, you know, I, I just need a little grace around the edges, but generally I'm pretty good. Like, as long as we have that mindset, we can't ever appreciate the depth of God's love for us. We can never appreciate how far God has gone all in for me, and we'll never submit ourselves to him if we think, yeah, God just kind of, he just kind of polished me up a little on the edges, but I really, you know, I didn't owe him that much. We have this idea of ourselves of only owing God like a little bit. In fact, I'm pretty good on my own. That's a totally different mindset. And uh, it made me think of the step one of Alcoholics Anonymous or of any 12-step program. Step one is you have to say, I admit that I'm powerless over this. I'm powerless over this. And I think that that is not just a good first step for uh, addiction recovery. I think it's a good first step for coming to God. I think that's a good first step for life is to say, man, I, I am powerless over my sin. Like, I, there's nothing I can do to be perfect. There's nothing I can do to be inherently good. There's nothing I can do to transform myself. There's nothing I can do to change me from being the person that I am. I'm actually, I'm powerless over this sin. This sin has a hold on me. This self-centeredness, always doing things that, that benefit me, de- defining for myself what's good and what's evil, and not even being able to stick to that. Man, I'm powerless to break out of this cycle. And the thought is that even me is bankrupt. This woman, when she came to Jesus, she recognized, I am powerless over this. It's only by Jesus that I have any power. Anything good in me comes from him. Anyway, I'm powerless over it. See, we want to meet Jesus on our terms. We want to say, God, help me with this and this and this, but I think I've got a pretty good handle on these things, so don't try and take that. God, I I think I'm pretty good here, but we have to recognize that we have nothing. One of my favorite parables that Jesus ever told comes uh, in in the book of Matthew, I think, uh, off the top of my head, I want to say, but it's uh, the story of two guys who go to pray, and one of them was a Pharisee, like Simon. He was righteous. He did all the right stuff. He was a cool church dude. And he prays and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like all these other sinners. Thank you that I am righteous, that I am, and I'm, I'm pretty good, that I do the right things, that I give a lot of money. That, just thank you that I'm righteous. Then the other person was a tax collector. He was a, a cheater and a liar and he, a traitor to his own people. He was, uh, did a lot of things terribly wrong. And he goes to pray to God and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. And Jesus said that the second guy was the one who went away made righteous before God. The second guy was the one that was pleasing to God. That, his prayer was the one that we should model ourselves after, after. And it's because he said, I'm bankrupt. I have nothing to offer. God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. 
he recognized his own state. The Pharisee thought he was good. Looking at the outside of that tomb, the Pharisees thought, I'm whitewashed, I'm clean, I'm pure. But he missed the depth of decay that was inside of him. Jesus said, you know, the healthy don't need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. I haven't come for those who think they can see. I've come for those who realize that they are blind. Another thing that Jesus said is, those, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. To hunger and thirst for something, you got to realize, I don't have it. If I'm hungry, that means I don't have food. If I'm thirsty, that means I don't have water. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, you got to say, I can't be good on my own. I don't have anything truly good in and of myself. It all comes from God. God, I need more of that. And Jesus says, you'll be filled. I will transform you. I will work on you. I've come for you, but it takes humility. It takes saying, God, I'm bankrupt. I'm bankrupt. I have nothing to offer you, but I owe you everything. Jesus carries his point a step further. In verse 44, he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured out perfume on my feet. It kind of sounds like your mom, you know? Look at this. You got your elbows on the table. You know, you didn't lay out the red carpet. You didn't clean up when the guests are coming over. You're not being a good host. You know, it's Jesus is calling him out on all the ways that he didn't welcome him. And he says, you aren't the great example of a host here. You think that you're so righteous and this woman is being the intrusion. Actually, you didn't even welcome me. This woman welcomed me. She is playing the role of host because you neglected that role. And Jesus Man, he drives his point home. How embarrassing for Simon. And Simon did the minimum. He did the, the barely polite. He had Jesus over dinner, but he didn't go the extra mile because in Simon's mind, he didn't owe it to Jesus. He didn't owe it to Jesus to go that far. But the woman, this woman who comes in and pours out the perfume on, her, on his feet, she knew that she owed him everything. She knew that she owed him everything, even me, this even me mindset, it leaves nothing out. Leaves nothing out, which is just another way of saying nothing's out. It's all in. It's all in. Whatever we hold back for ourselves is worthless, honestly. So what did Simon gain by holding back his welcome? What did Simon gain by not giving Jesus a kiss on the cheek? What did Simon gain by not giving him water to wash his feet? Nothing. He saved a little face, maybe. He said, he showed the other guests, I'm not, this guy's not better than me. Like, I'm the one who's hosting. Like, he can come to my door and, and take care of this himself. He saved a little bit of face there, but what is that worth? That's worthless. That's, that's nothing. And whatever we hold back for ourselves is worth nothing. In fact, to give it away to Jesus is to turn it into something meaningful, this woman poured out this perfume on his feet, wiped the tears off his feet. That was turned into a meaningful act, whereas Simon holding back for himself, it was worthless. And this is the same idea, if you may know the story of um, Jesus feeding the 5,000, where he was, he was teaching 5,000 plus people, and 
they, there was no food, but they were there and they were enjoying his teaching so much. They didn't go home. They didn't get food. They were all hungry. And Jesus says, all right, you know, disciples, go, go feed them. So I was like, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to feed 5,000 people? Jesus said, make it happen. So the disciples went and they, they looked and they, they brought Jesus, uh, a little boy who had um, some fish and some bread, some fish and some bread, a little bit, maybe like a snack. And they said, it's not much, but here, he's willing to offer this. And if he had kept it for himself, you know, ultimately meaningless. It would have been a little bit of nice sustenance for him, but he would have made it home and the next day forgotten all about that meal and on to looking for the next one. By offering it up to Jesus, Jesus multiplied it and transformed it to feed over 5,000 people. And then we're still talking about it thousands of years later today. Jesus turned that one little meal that he had into something amazing. If we hold it back for ourselves, its meaning is lost. Its meaning is lost. If we give it up to Jesus, it has turned into something truly meaningful. Jesus, he drives the point home. Verse 47, he keeps going. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, have been forgiven as her great love has shown. He's like, you can see, because of this love she's shown, you can see that she's been forgiven a lot. She's been forgiven because you know this because she shows this love. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests, they began to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? And Luke, as he's composing this, this uh, arrangement, as he's writing up this account of this event that happened, I think he leaves this question right, right at the end of the scene, right near at the end of the scene, um, as a kind of a way to make us think about this question, as a way of saying, who is this that even forgives sins? Because that really changes your understanding of what happened in that room. It changes your perspective on everything. And the woman, she was clear. She knew who Jesus was. She was clear on this answer because she was willing to be so focused in on him, to tune out the judgment of everyone else, to come and to give of herself and to have this intimate interaction with Jesus, to be able to say, Jesus, I owe everything to you. You've forgiven me. You've transformed me. Everything that I have that's good has come from you. I owe it all to you. I'm going all in for you. She knew who Jesus was. He's the one who deserved her worship. Verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The thing this morning, the thing this morning, the big thing is that even me hangs on who Jesus is. This even me mindset, it hangs on who Jesus is. If he's just this, this thing that like kind of helps you to be a better person, if he's just like a, a cultural piece of what it means to be a good and hardworking American, if he's just this, you know, Sundays I go to church, that's what I do. If he's just this tiny piece of your life that's sitting on the shelf, it's, it's kind of meaningless to pour out for him. It's meaningless to give your life your best to him in worship. It, it's honestly, it's not worth it. If that's all that he is, if he's nobody special, then that perfume that she poured out is wasted. If he's God, if he's the one that made us and loves us and died for us and wants to see us transformed, if he is God, then poured out anywhere else is wasted. 
It should all be given to Jesus because anything else is worthless in comparison. The whole story of the universe turns on this one question of, of who Jesus is. In fact, the, the gospel, man, it highlights this so clearly. We see when we decide, I got this, I can decide good and evil for myself. I think I have a pretty good understanding of right and wrong. I think I can handle this for myself. And we go our own way. It doesn't turn out well. History has shown this to be the case time after time. Our own lives show this to be the case time after time. If we say, I got this, I can handle this. God, I don't, I don't need your help here. Man, it ends up in hurt and pain and decay and death. It ends up with everything bad and it separates us from God. When we say, God, I, we don't need you. I don't need you. I'm going to define good and evil on my own terms. It separates us from him and it leaves us in this broken, messed up world full of death. But God was not content to just be this big, awesome, transcendent God, this God who created everything and is bigger and higher and more morally good than all of us. He wasn't content to just be that, because he is that. But he also said, no, I, I am going to become a human being because I want to be not just transcendent and huge and awesome. I want to be intimate and personal and close I want to be right there with them. I want to walk the dirt on the same planet as these people I've created. So Jesus was God, and he was that plan to become close to us and then to pour out his life, to pour out his blood at the cross, to die so that by his death and his giving everything for us and his resurrection that we can somehow amazingly be restored back to relationship with God, that we can be transformed into God's image, that we can be totally changed and we can be reconciled to God. That is incredible. That changes everything depending on who Jesus is and your answer, your response to him. And everyone's got a response. Everyone has a story. And this month, each week, we've been showing a, uh, a clip of a Riversider whose story uh, uh, their story of interacting with Jesus and what that means. And uh, it's been awesome to be doing that. So this morning, we've, we've looked at this story, uh, an ancient story of someone who knew who Jesus was. Now we're going to hear from uh, Carson Nichols and her truly incredible story um, uh, of knowing who Jesus is and interacting with him. So uh, I'll let her tell her own story. So my parents are divorced and both remarried and uh, basically from the ages of 5 to 14 I was actually sexually abused by my stepbrother. Through all of that there was a lot going on there where I felt like either God like either God couldn't exist or he had left me. Like, those were the only two options, and I went back and forth between those a lot. And then when I was 14, I ended up talking to a guidance counselor at my high school about that. And then for the next three years, I was put through trial. So we went to court, and that was um, even worse, kind of, than the abuse right. itself. And then I found out that five other people, at the very least, had also been abused, and none of us had known about each other. So it was kind of madness and I really was, uh, I suffered from depression and anxiety and I wasn't doing great in life in general. Um, and then when I was 
18, I was at work and me and my friend from work went, were, got, uh, got off early and we got into a car accident. Um, I was not driving, I was the passenger, but I got, um, we hit into a hillside and then we, um, the car flipped and I ended up going through the passenger side window and being ejected 50 feet out of the car. Um, and I landed between a cross and a guardian angel on the side of the road. And I woke up and I heard the audible voice of God saying, I have never left you. And my whole entire life, I had felt like God had left me. He wasn't there. And in that moment, I just started praying on the side of the road um, and asking for forgiveness and just asking what the next steps were for life, for where I was going, and not even knowing if I was going to survive this because I, you know, I'm sitting on the side of the road in a pool of my own blood, but I just knew that he was real and he was there and he was there for me and he had never left me through all of what I had been through. You know, I ended up being, going to the hospital and um, the original first responder that came and saw us, he called his mom and he said, I think she's gonna die on the way to the hospital. Like, I just don't think she's gonna make it. And when I got to the hospital, um, you know, everybody thought I was in shock. I was awake, I was talking, and um, really I did not have horrible injuries. I had broken my pelvis and I had broken a lot of bones in my one leg, but other than that, I had no internal injuries. I had no head damage, like um, head trauma, I had nothing. And so I was in a hospital bed for six months uh, and in a wheelchair. And I had to learn to walk again. Um, but through that whole process, I really leaned on my grandfather, who's a Methodist minister, and talked to him and was just like, you know, I felt, you know, I heard God speak to me. And like, what what am I supposed to be doing with that? Because I had been living my life as if he didn't exist or as if he left. A really big part of my recovery through everything was um, forgiving my stepbrother. And not only that, but praying for his salvation. And I think there's so much power in that, like praying for the person who has hurt you the most and knowing that like, even they aren't so far gone from God that he can't be saved. Um, and that doesn't mean that I you know, want to be his best friend or anything, but that just means that I acknowledge God's power and know that anybody can have their life turned around just like I did. Um, and that there's a lot of power in being able to say, like, I forgive you, and I hope that God saves you just like he saved me, even though you hurt me. I think being all in it is just being open to whatever God wants for you. And whether that is, I, I think you have to put what you want for you aside a lot of the times, because, you know, there was a lot of plans, like I'm such, I'm in a family of a lot of planners. I wouldn't say that I'm like the biggest planner, but I think so often you get in your head of like, this is what I want for my life, and you don't realize what God wants for your life because you're just looking for him to say like, oh yeah, and nudge you along, and instead of just being like open to whatever it is he has in store. Thank you.
Thank you, Carson, so much for being willing to share that story. And um, man, that's, that's moving and, and powerful. Uh, and we can learn a lot from this story. Um, I, I don't want to just kind of diminish it by bringing it down to just a couple points, but I, there were a couple things that I wanted to highlight that really stood out to me. Um, and one was that in that moment of being, being thrown from the vehicle on the side of the road, there are no illusions of control. Like, it, it makes it easy in that moment to admit what it's so difficult a lot of the time for us to admit that we are powerless over our own lives. And in that moment, there is some clarity to that. And I, I think also, um, as Carson pointed out in the video, you can look at those terrible events, terrible things happening, and you can say, man, God is clearly not a part of this. Like, where is God in all of this? Or you can look at those terrible things happening, the terrible events, and you can say, man, clearly God is a part of this. Clearly he is here. Your perspective on that changes everything. Your interpretation of the event changes your entire response of whether you see the presence of God in that or not. And um, your interpretation is everything. And so as you're thinking on that and reflecting on that, um, the the question, the question, the big question for this morning uh, that I want us to, to focus in on is, who is Jesus? Because if even me, this even me response hangs on who Jesus is, then we got to answer, who is Jesus? Is he just this cool thing that I like, this cool little piece of my life? Or is he the Lord of everything? And maybe you say, yeah, I, I have answered this question long ago. This is an obvious question for me. I, like, I know the answer to who is Jesus. Well, okay, is, is your answer to this question obvious by the way that you live? Because nobody could mistake that woman in this story when she comes in to see Jesus, when she barges into this dinner party where she wasn't invited to pour perfume on his feet and to just be totally focused on him and on their relationship. Nobody could miss the message that that carries, the message of, Jesus, you're my everything. I owe everything to you because I have nothing to offer. I'm bankrupt. I'm powerless, but you can change me. You have forgiven me, and you are giving me new life. I want to give everything to you because you have gone in all in for even me. And that answer is obvious. And, and I tell you, Simon's answer to this question was also obvious. His answer was, Jesus, he's, he's kind of a neat teacher. You know, I'll have him over for dinner, listen to what he has to say, but I'm not going all out. I'm not going to go so far as to do this, this, and this to welcome him. Like, you know, I'm a Pharisee. I got, I got my, uh, my appearance to look after. I've got to think about how people are going to see me. His answer was just as obvious to this question. So how are we going to answer it for ourselves? If you're comfortable even closing your eyes for a minute just to, to close out all the distractions, to stop thinking about appearances and other people looking and thoughts and all the different things that can distract us, just focus in on this question of Jesus. And is your relationship, is my relationship with Jesus intimate, personal, one-on-one, -on -one, only him and me in the room, not caring about what it looks like or how it matters to anyone else, but just him and me. Is it intimate? Or do I care about how it looks? Do I admit 
my bankruptcy? Do I admit, God, I'm powerless to earn this? I'm powerless to be good on my own. I'm powerless to be anything worthwhile on my own. Anything good in me comes from you. I need you, God. I'm bankrupt. Do I admit that? Or am I tempted to think, I got this on my own. You know, I can control this. I can improve myself. I can live for something meaningful. I can be transformed. I can be good and and great on my own. Am I holding anything back for myself? Am I saying, God, you can have this part of my life, you can have this thing, you can have this piece, but over here, you know, I've got a pretty good handle on that. Like, God, hands off, please. I, I can control what I do with this part of my life. I think I've got it covered. Is that my approach to anything? Maybe that's, you know, money, the way I use my money, the way I, it's the way I spend my time, the things that I devote my time to, how I schedule my life, or maybe it's my attitude towards uh, things, towards people, towards ideas. God, what is it that, that I'm holding back that should be yours? Maybe it's a big decision that you're facing. Maybe you've got big choices about what career path are you taking? What relationships are you in that maybe you're saying, God, this is, this is my thing. Okay, you can have everything else. God, I'm holding this one back. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe you're saying, God, I can handle this one my way. I don't need to handle it your way. What is it that you're holding back? Because whatever you're holding back is going to be worthless for you in your own hands, in your own power. It's going to be worthless and wasted. But given over to Jesus, poured out at his feet, it's turned into something meaningful based on your answer to who is Jesus, who is he? And am I living in a way that makes my answer to that obvious? What's your next step? Let's, let's pray together. God, we ask that you would make it obvious to us who you are. You would make it obvious to the people around us who you are by the way that we live, by the things that we say, the things that we do, by the people that we care about, by the the times that we don't care what others think, but we go out of our way to show your love, to pour it out at your feet, to do what you want us to do the way you want us to do it, God. Are we thinking of you the way that you deserve to be thought of, the way you deserve to be treated? God, I pray for the person in this room that's, that's been following you many years, that's, that is trying to pour out at your feet. I pray that you would Give them strength to continue doing that, to, um, to never be dissuaded by what the world might think, by how improper or by how righteous they might look, but that they would be focused totally on you and that they wouldn't be tempted to think that they've earned it, that it's their own effort, but that they're powerless and that it all comes from you. For the person who maybe has done this in the past, they've given themselves to you, but they've kind of just become comfortable where they are, become comfortable holding some back, some pieces back of their life, some pieces back, and giving some to you, God, pray that you would help us to be all in, to not hold anything back because we realize that it's given over to you is where it finds its fruition. God, for the person in this room that would say, yeah, I, I've never even thought about giving myself to Jesus. I've never even thought about the fact that he might be somebody worth devoting my entire life to. God, I pray for that person that you would speak to them now, you would move in them now, and God, that we would all be able to say, Jesus, because of what you did, 
not because of what I can do, because you went all in for me on the cross. God, I realize I can't do it on my own. Forgive me. Forgive me for all of my sin, my messed up stuff in my life, all the ways that I consistently choose selfish things. Forgive me, God. I want to do this under your power. Would you take me? I'm bankrupt, and I'm all in for you. Help me. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.